Last Sunday, we examined 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, and I hope you'll have your copy of God's Word open and be looking carefully. We looked at God's clear word to Christian wives. And nothing, if you're looking at verses 1 through 6 of 1 Peter 3 right now, nothing that Peter said there would have been the least bit surprising to the surrounding cultures of the day, of Greek and Roman cultures. But in our single verse today to Christian husbands, look at verse 7. In our single verse, Peter turns the entire Roman society on its head. He sets forth a radically different way of married life. Our text today contains careful instruction for Christian husbands, but it is most certainly not the only counsel Scripture gives to husbands. In Ephesians 5, I hope you'll look there because I promised you last week that we're going to have a lengthy introduction I want to set this up for you so that you can see what are the major tenets that Scripture teaches husbands. If you're here and you grew up in a dysfunctional home or a divorced home or just haven't thought about that and you're thinking, I'm, I think I need to start considering what a husband should be. I'm about that age, that station in life. I want you to see what are the core base principles that Scripture commands husbands. In Ephesians 5, Peter's fellow apostle Paul gives the lengthiest teaching in the New Testament to husbands. Now, last week you noted that I said that text was the lengthiest teaching to wives. But in Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 28, Paul, and this is all a setup for you, Paul gives this teaching to husbands, and notice what his emphasis is on. In verses 25 through 28 in Ephesians 5, the emphasis on husbands loving their wives. He says this in verse 25 through 28, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to, love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now I want you to notice before we even get to Peter, this is Peter's fellow apostle Paul, he puts the emphasis for husbands on one thing, love, love for your wife. Husbands, the model and the standard for you to imitate is not Boaz's love for Ruth or Isaac's for Rebecca. The love that you're slavishly to imitate is that of the Lord Jesus for his beloved bride, the church, his elect. And that's why Paul writes in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives, and he doesn't cite any other example. Here's the example he cites. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now let me remind you and spell out carefully how Jesus loves his bride, because this is the model, husbands, for you. There's more for you coming when Peter puts pen to paper. But the primary thing that Paul was to teach is Christ loves his bride. So think of a few things, ways that Jesus loves his bride. Husbands, you should be saying, okay, I'm to imitate this. This is to be my my yardstick, my rule. First of all, Christ's love for his bride is a planned and a volitional love. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1-4 that Christ loved his bride before the foundation of the world. He chose to love his bride. They chose in advance. Even more so, 
Christ's love for his bride is an unconditional love. In fact, it's so unconditional that Paul tells us in Romans 5.8, while you were yet a sinner, Jesus died for you, his bride. Christ loved you when you were doing everything to repel him. He didn't love you because you met certain conditions. Husband, your love for your wife, if imitative of Christ, should not be marked by a series of ifs. I will love her if and when she does this. Christ's love for you is unconditional. Christ's love for his bride is an initiating bride. Jesus is the one who does all the pursuing. It was Jesus who came after you, never you after him. Jesus says to his beloved bride in John 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Christ chose you as his bride and did all the work. He pursued you. Husbands, are you listening? Even if there's an argument, who is it who is to pursue and initiate reconciliation? It's the husband as he imitates Christ. This love of Christ for his bride is a sacrificial love. We're told repeatedly, Christ died for, Christ died for, in our place. Jesus' love for his bride drove him to endure her penalty, suffering the horrific wrath of the Father, paying for sins that were not his own. He had none. But he didn't only sacrifice for his bride in his death. For the 33 years leading up to his atoning death, he lowered himself, was progressively humiliated, all for her, all for his bride's good and salvation. Because of his deep love for his bride, Jesus would endure being born into a poverty-stricken home. Because of his extravagant love for his bride, Jesus would endure a temptation from the evil one. Because of his incredible love for her, Jesus would hand himself over to wicked men to be mocked, slapped, spit upon, tortured for hours, stripped naked. That's what sacrificial love looks like. Husbands, if your love for your wife is like Christ for his bride, you'll be setting aside your own comfort to serve your wife. Christ's love for his bride was a, a purposeful love. In fact, there in Ephesians 5, the text we're looking at right now, Peter's fellow apostle Paul says, Jesus works to see his bride sanctified, improved, changed, developed, cleansed. Jesus loves his bride so profoundly that he will not leave her in lawlessness and ignorance, but will sanctify her and mature her. Any view of the Christian life that isn't dead serious about holiness is working against Jesus and his love for his bride. Christ's love for his bride is an unending love. We're told in Romans 8, no matter what, Christ's love for his bride never fails. Time will not erode Jesus' love for his bride. Listen to these words. Who shall separate us, the bride of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, perils, sword. I'm persuaded that neither life nor death, nor angels or principalities or powers or things present or things to come or height or depth or any other created thing shall be able to separate us. Understanding this principle, that Christ has no intention of being separated from his bride. Understanding this principle is why Protestant wedding vows mandate that the groom and the bride promise to be faithful to this person until death parts them. This love of Jesus for his bride. And remember, this is Paul's emphasis. It's not going to be Peter's. Paul's emphasis is on one thing. The love of the husband for the wife. 
this love, because it imitates Christ's love, is a particular love. Jesus does not, no matter how often folk religion seeks to say otherwise, Jesus does not love everyone in the same way. It's simply not true. He loves his bride with a particular saving love. We're told in John 17 that he prays for her and not everyone else. We're told in John 10 he lays down his life for her and not everyone else. Husbands, if you're looking right now, and I hope you're staying with me, if you're looking at Ephesians 5 in that tight context about marriage, in Ephesians 5 verse 25, Paul tells you to love your wife. And then following soon after in Ephesians 5:28, Paul tells you, you ought to love your own wife. Anytime you see the word ought or should, I'm a, a word not to hear. When somebody says you ought to do something and they're speaking as a Christian, you know, the elders ought to do this. You ought to do that. You need to ask the question, is that ought rooted in scripture or is that just their opinion? If it's just their opinion, they should lead with, I think you should do this. Okay, thanks for the advice. But the only time you should weigh heavily an oughtness or shouldness is when scripture says it. Ought and should are ethical words, which means this is what is lawful. And so when Paul writes in Ephesians 5.28, husbands, you ought to love your own wife. People will say all kinds of crazy things ought to be. They'll say it ought to be the responsibility of the civil magistrate to use public tax dollars to pay for your doctor's visit in your children's college. Of course, Scripture never says any such thing. But it does emphatically say that you husbands ought, should, sacrificially love your own wife. In between verse 25 and 28 of Ephesians 5, that that great Pauline passage on what husbands should do, Paul tells us that Jesus loved his bride And you husbands ought to love your wives just as Christ loved her. So men, where do you go to understand how to love your wife? Do you look at your dad's love for your mom? Do you look at chick flicks? Would that help? Do you watch The Bachelor? No. You look to Jesus in his love. Husbands, I hope you've, you've picked up on this principle, that this is the one and only legitimate place to learn how to love your wife. Husbands, you should love your wife by providing for her varying needs. Remember what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5. If anyone doesn't provide for his own household, he's worse than an unbeliever. Remember, your wife has a variety of needs, physical, economic, emotional, spiritual, social. And you're not loving her well if you don't have a concern for all of these. Husbands, you can show your love by sacrificing for her this is also called in scripture considering her more important than yourself. Perhaps you come home from work and you're all tired out. You want to plop down in your chair and watch the football game. Your wife has other ideas. She wants to talk and then she wants to shop and then she wants to go out to eat and she wants you to do all of these things with her. At that point, if you deny yourself And do what her desires are. Even though you don't want to, you will be denying yourself saying, I love you. Your desires are more important than mine. By the way, when we say a husband should show his love for his wife by sacrificing for her, sacrificial means going beyond. Do you ever do that or are you just bumping along the bottom doing the minimum expectation? You can show your love by refusing to compare her with other women. Husbands will often point out some ability a a wife lacks or some other characteristic or quality or feature. 
I'll never forget, Sandy and I were newlyweds, and we were sitting in the third row at Emanuel Baptist Church in Edmond, Oklahoma, and a couple who's sitting right in front of us, and the husband, by the way, was a little on the portly side. And he was talking to his wife, and we overheard. He said, you know, Velma has lost 10 pounds in the last 10 days. Why can't you? And I remember thinking, well, that's a fool, and I'm only married six months, and I know that. Velma did not receive his advice well. Well, you can also show your love by demonstrating that apart from Christ, she is absolutely first place in your life. Your wife needs to hear regularly that she comes before your career, your parents, your kids, your house, your hobbies. She needs to know that you delight in her more than anything or anyone. Husbands, you can show your love. Again, we're trying to get past just the bare commandment, husbands, love your wives, to talk about what that's going to look like. Husbands, you can show your love by showing her more respect and courtesy and tenderness than anyone else because, Paul tells us, love is kind. This means refusing to make jokes about her, sarcastic remarks about her cooking, her appearance, her faults, especially in front of others. If you're going to show her respect, that means things like opening the door. Husbands, you know this. You did it when you were dating. Remember that? But we believe in progressive sanctification. You should be showing even more respect and honor for your wife as the years go by. And those of us who have been married 30, 40, even more years, your respect and your honor and your kindness should be off the charts. Because remember, we believe in progressive sanctification. You can show your love. Pastor Anderson just read this text in Proverbs 31. You can show your love by expressing praise in lavish doses. Remember what the husband of the Proverbs 31 wife says to her? Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Husband, if you love your wife, you'll express appreciation and respect for her insights and ideas and questions and prayers and character and opinions and fellowship, as well as for her domestic duties. If that doesn't come natural, go home and draw up a list of 30 things to praise your wife for and do one a day for a month. That'll get you started. But all of that, the preceding, husbands should be loving their wife, is the Apostle Paul's emphasis primarily on one issue, loving your wife. But Peter has a different priority, as we'll see. I hope you have your finger in 1 Peter 3. And I want to tell you a couple of things about Peter that makes this weightier. Peter was a married man. When Peter writes these words, he does not write as an inexperienced man. He's a married man. Do you remember in Luke chapter 4, we just have this offhanded comment, and I think it's fascinating that we're told this because this adds so much gravitas to what Peter teaches about the duties of a husband. We're told in Luke 4.38, this offhanded comment, Jesus arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house, that's Peter, but Simon's wife's mother. Peter not only had a wife, he had a mother-in-law. Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever and they made request of him concerning her. Peter had a house in Capernaum. That's a city in Galilee. He had a wife and a mother-in-law. And then I want you to notice the duration of his marriage. It was a long marriage. Look at 1 Corinthians 9 and I want you to be staggered Again, another offhanded comment about Peter's marital state. 
well over 25 years after the resurrection of our Lord, Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians 9, and he's talking about the rights and privileges of an apostle that he has set aside in his sacrifices for the churches, especially the church at Corinth. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, do we have no right to take along a believing wife? Oh, a believing wife. As do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, or Peter. Paul has just told us something staggering. He's told us his fellow apostle Peter has a wife who's living at that point. So they've been married at least 25 years, probably 30, 35 or more. And his wife is a believer. Paul says, we have a right to take along a believing wife just like Peter does. This indicates that several of the apostles were married during their ministry and their wives traveled with them. And Peter is the one who's especially pointed out. And so all of that to say is, Peter knows a thing or two about married life. Now, let me tell you, nothing is more obnoxious than a guy who's been married for about six months, and he wants to tell everybody how to live as a husband. And ladies, the same goes for you. Nothing is more obnoxious um, than to come back from your honeymoon and tell all the ladies who've been married 40 years how to be married. But Peter, when he writes, he's not doing that. He's writing as a veteran who's been married 25, 30 more years. Now, Peter is also deeply rooted in the Old Covenant. He knows his Old Testament. In fact, next week, next Sunday, we're going to look at Peter's exposition of Psalm 34. Peter knows his Bible. And so Peter would gladly affirm, Genesis 2.18, it's not good for a man to be alone. He would gladly affirm Proverbs 18.22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And so when we look at verse 7, we're looking at a man who's been married for decades, looking at a man who's still married, looking at a man who knows his Bible, looking at a man who has a mother-in-law. And so we should perk up. Not only is this the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's from a veteran, mature, godly, successful husband. So as we prepare to look at this very important text, let's seek the Lord's help. Sovereign Lord, open our hearts and minds now by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as your scriptures are studied, dug into, your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today, and then apply it deeply in our homes and our marriages. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hope you're looking at 1 Peter 3, 7. You're thinking, really, is there that much there? Oh, there's so much more here. <clears throat> I want you to notice, first of all, the imperatives to husbands. Now, last week we looked at the principal imperative to wives, and several of you husbands were doing this and elbowing your wife. You even have it on good account that some of you even thought during the sermon that it was wise to say, are you listening to your wife? Pastor Dodds will be back soon from Brazil for marriage counseling, for those of you. But I want you to notice the first imperative to husbands in verse 7. Dwell with your wives with understanding. It's an imperative. Dwell with them. I love to be around men who really know their stuff, guys who know what they're talking about, whether it's computers or sports 
or politics. I haven't found a man yet who knows what he's talking about with that. Or engines. And such men who have spent an enormous amount of time and money to know them. And who you want to know more. Talking to a brother a few weeks ago, and he has all these certifications. And I said, in computers, and I said, do you know right off the top of your head how many certifications you have? He said, 14. These are akin to degrees. And so he started rattling them off. I was trying to write them down. A++. I thought, what is that? But he, he knew them all. The same brother, within the same five minutes, wanted to talk to me about his marital problems. And he said the following words. I wrote them down. He said, I don't understand my wife. And I thought, isn't this fascinating? You have just told me of all the ways you know your hobby. It's not even your business. All these certifications. But when it comes to your wife, you're saying, I don't have a clue. And so I very gently tried to say, what you just said to me is a confession of sin. The fact that you don't know your wife, that you don't understand her. This speaks of your disobedience to this imperative because God has given you an imperative to dwell with your wife with understanding, with knowledge. And whether you've been married a month, a year, a decade, or a generation, you as a husband are seeking to be seeking deep knowledge of one woman, her. That many husbands don't do this speaks of an incredible innate laziness on their part. Because your wife is by far, there's not even a close second, your wife is by far the most important human relationship, far more so than your parents or your children or your co-workers. And learning and understanding one woman takes a lifetime. This is why, among many other reasons, polygamy is not only wicked, but it's foolish. Look across the page at your bulletin right now. And look what we just confessed. We just confessed as our public confession of our theology. Westminster Confession 24.1. Isn't it astounding how relevant and up to date our confession is? Yes, it was written 380 years ago. But notice what our confession of faith says. Our creed to which every elder and deacon and minister in the PCA must subscribe. It says uh -uh, marriage is between one man, one woman that polygamy is completely ruled out as wicked and, I would add, foolish. Now, I would say this, and I'm not saying this to be snide. I'm not even saying this for a laugh line. Husbands, it is a full-time job to understand one woman, your wife. A man cannot possibly understand multiple women. When I met Sandy Sue Steinberg, she was 17, and I was enamored with two things, her blonde hair and her jump shot. And she could nail her free throws. I was breathtaking. I will tell you, I've known her for 45 years, and I'm constantly learning new things about her. It's not because she's hard to understand. It's because I'm a slow learner. But this is a school from which you never graduate. Look at that first phrase in verse 7. Peter is commanding you husbands that you're to be a lifelong student of your wife. Now, I've known other men who said, yeah, I'm a student of women. That's not what Peter's saying. He's saying not that you should be a student of women. Get your eyes back where they belong. You should be a lifelong student of one woman, your one flesh partner. Husbands dwell with them, Peter says. That is your wife with understanding. God is commanding you to have a profound interest in her. 
What should you understand about your wife? First of all, you should understand what the Bible says about her. That your wife, she was made in God's image, so she has incredible value and worth. You should understand that she was redeemed by the work of Christ, the sinless life and substitutionary death. She wasn't redeemed any different way than you're redeemed. You should understand that she was converted, if she is converted, she was converted by faith in Christ and repentance from sin. If your wife has not exercised faith in Jesus, she's not converted. If she's not repented, she's not converted. You should understand that she is daily, just like you, she's daily fighting a three-front battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. You should understand of your wife, she's a saint who sins daily in word, thought, and deed. What should you study about her? If you're to dwell with her with understanding, you should study her mind. Do you know what your wife knows and what she doesn't? How she thinks? You should study her core beliefs. You should study her emotions, tears, anger, joy. You should know and study her strengths and weaknesses. And you should study her sins. In fact, it's going to be vital that you study her sins. Because Peter is going to tell us a little further on in his writings that it is your task to know which sins of hers to confront and which to cover. You must know her besetting sins. Peter is saying, husbands, look at the words in verse 7. When he says, dwell with your wife with understanding. Peter is saying, husbands, you must be an expert in your wife. Men, this knowledge and understanding of your wife that you gain is to lead to something else. Look at the rest of our text. It's to lead you to give honor to your wife. Now, you know how to dishonor somebody. Just turn on talk radio or cable news and you'll hear dishonor spewed wall to wall. But you as a husband, you are commanded to be skilled at honoring one specific person. Your wife. Once again, we have a perfect model for this. The Lord bestows honor on people. In John 12, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So if the Lord has no problem honoring people, considering his great glory, why are we so apt to dishonor each other? How should you honor your wife? Well, first of all, the way you speak to her. Your tone of voice. Actions of honor, holding doors, looking out for her rights, doing good to her as you have opportunity, serving her. That's why Paul can write to every believer in Romans 12 and say, Be kindly affectionate to one another in honor, giving preference to one another. Why should you honor her, your wife? Because she possesses the image of God. We're told that in the first chapter in the Bible in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Every person is worthy of honor because the Bible teaches that God has placed supreme dignity upon them. The Lord says of your wife in Psalm 8 that he has crowned her with glory and honor. She is worth honoring. Many men, it's troubling to be around couples like this. Many men speak to their wife and treat her like she's one of the guys. She's not. She's incredibly valuable, more than any possession or career. She's your most precious relationship, a gift from God, and you must treat her as such. And so let me ask you, are you respectful to your wife in private and public when you talk to her and about her? Do you allow your kids to speak disrespectfully to your wife? Does the way that you talk about your wife demand that others look at her in a positive light? 
Do you talk about her so that others will look up to her? If I spend five minutes talking to you about your wife, would I quickly know that she's the most important relationship you have? Now look at that command in verse 7 to honor her. It's not a Mother's Day thing only. It is phased, phrased in the continuous present. This means it's something that you're always to do. When you get out of bed in the morning, you begin by honoring your wife. Now immediately, Peter says something that you think may be contradictory. Look carefully. He says that your wife is the weaker vessel. In what ways is your wife a weaker vessel? Well, not intellectually weaker. Put Sandy and I in a science class and she leaves me in the dust. It's not morally weaker. Men and women are equally impaired by Adam's fall. Normally speaking, how the historic Christian church, especially Protestants, have understood this, is women are physically weaker, but even that's just a general statement. A 1982 study by the U.S. military demonstrated that men had a greater lifting capacity than women. The average lifting capacity for women soldiers was 66 pounds. The average for men was 120 pounds. Men had 80% higher lifting capacity. A more recent Air Force test for lifting 110 pounds was passed by 70% of men and 1% of women. And so it's probably pretty obvious that when Peter writes and speaks of the woman being the weaker vessel, he's probably at least including the idea of physically weaker. So knowing that, husbands, you must, this is one of the ways you honor your wife, you must plan to compensate for that. <clears throat> 20 years ago, I made my first trip to Peru to teach in the Presbyterian Seminary in Cajamarca. Cajamarca is in the clouds. It's an elevation of 9,000 feet, which means it's 4,000 feet higher than Denver. And when you get to Cajamarca, it takes a few days to acclimate to the altitude. And then surrounding Cajamarca are hills that soar even higher, another 1,000 feet above that. The descendants of the Inca Indians still live and farm up there, beans, corn, coffee, potatoes. But each morning, the first morning I was there, Alonzo Ramirez, my beloved host, said, Carl, I don't want you walking around. I don't want you talking because people get altitude sickness. So what I want to do is I want to park you in a chair in the town square of Cajamarca. I'm going to get you a cup of coffee, and I want you to sit there and acclimate. I want you to sit there till at least lunch and just watch. I know you consider yourself an amateur, a very amateur sociologist, and so just watch the culture. And so I sit there, and as soon as I did, here comes the parade of men descending down from the hills bringing their crops into the market to sell. The men were all riding these very majestic horses. And they all had on tall hats. I actually bought one of those hats and brought it back. It's not as tall as their hats, but it's tall enough. So as these men were riding their horses down these paths into Caja Market to bring their goods to market, their wives would be walking behind them. Did you hear that? Walking behind them dragging heavy bags of potatoes. The men would tie up their horses at a rail right by where I was sitting, would tie up their horses, they would walk over to the shade, and they would sit all day and drink themselves into a stupor while their wives sold the potatoes. At the end of the day, their wives would pack up the potatoes that were left, and now they would do the really hard part. They would walk uphill, and their husbands would slump, mostly asleep in a drunken stupor, they would walk back up the mountains. The next day they'd do it all over again. 
This troubled me beyond measure. And so I asked one of my Peruvian pastor guides, I said, what's up with that? And he said, these men are unbelievers. First thing he said, he said, these men are unbelievers. You can tell because of the way they dishonor their wife. Could men have any reason to say that about you? Peter here, when he's talking and reminding you that your wife is the weaker vessel, he's speaking of the way, the practical way, a husband honors his wife, taking into account her weakness. He shoulders the heavier burden and protects her. Why does a husband care for her weakness? He's imitating what God does with us. God sets his affection on the weak. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, that God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Peter goes on. I hope you're still fixated on 1 Peter 3, 7. I told you this verse is rich. Peter says that husbands and wives are heirs together. Now, I love the doctrine of adoption. Any opportunity to see it taught in the New Testament, and I jump up and down. And this is what Peter is teaching. He's teaching the doctrine of adoption. When he says husbands and wives are heirs together. We're going to see what they're heirs together of in just a moment. But Peter is teaching the doctrine of adoption. You remember adoption. Paul taught it in 1 Peter 1 when he says God predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Peter here in our text, when he says you and your wife are heirs together. He's reminding believing husbands and wives, not unbelieving, believing husbands and wives that they both are the adopted children of the Father. That means, husbands, you and her are spiritual equals. You're heirs together. Adoption is not a privilege given to all people. Certainly all men and women are image bearers. They have worth and dignity and should be treated as such. But by nature, no one, is naturally a child of God. By nature, all men are children of the devil, children of wrath. Men only become, men and women only become sons of God, daughters of God, by faith in Christ. Only those chosen and predestined are adopted as sons and daughters of God. When this adoption happens, old family ties are broken. Now you're members of God's household. Now we're told in Hebrews 12, Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Because he's cleansed us, he's not ashamed of us. But as adopted sons and daughters, you have rights and privileges. Since you and your your believing wife are both adopted children of God, joint heirs, you both, you both may call the first person of the Godhead Abba. Jesus even teaches us to call the first person of the Trinity our Father. Because you and your believing wife are both adopted children of God, joint heirs, you both, and this is staggering, you both have been given the same Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, to come and indwell you, and he is called in Scripture the Spirit of Adoption. Husbands, the same third person of the Trinity who guides you into all truth and pushes you towards holiness is doing the exact same thing for your believing wife. You're heirs together. Since you and your believing wife are both adopted children of God, you're both now the recipients of your father's tender care, the one who pities us and provides for us. Because you and your believing wife are both joint heirs, 
you both have a royal inheritance awaiting you. You have the certainty of both having all the Father's riches in glory. In Romans 8, we're told in a context about adoption that if we are children by adoption, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ will rule and reign with him. You and your wife are joint heirs. You have an equal share of the inheritance. When my mom died almost 10 years ago this January, and my brother and sister and I were given an inheritance, a tiny tiny sum. I think Sandy and I ate lunch on that. Mom's specific instructions in her will with the th- that the three of us receive exactly the same inheritance down to the penny. And it was pennies. We were joint heirs. Heirs together, to use Peter's phrase. Husbands, you and your wife have the exact same eternal inheritance. You don't have, husbands, some sort of preferred spiritual advantage or or higher status. You are joint heirs. Now, Peter throws in an interesting phrase. Look carefully at our verse in verse 7. He says, you're joint heirs together of the grace of life. This is a unique phrase. This, stare at it carefully, because this is the only place it's used in the New Testament. And this is a clear recognition that whether you or your wife, any blessing you've ever known is by grace. It's not as though one of you is converted by works and the other by grace. No, both of you have received every spiritual blessing you have, every honor, every status as adopted child by grace. You don't need a cent, either one of you, to purchase redemption and forgiveness. It's all been given freely by grace. How free is the grace of God? Well, no time limit is placed upon forgiveness. Christ freely forgives your sins of decades ago. How rich is his grace? No numeric limit is set upon his forgiveness. He forgives all your sins, even though they number in the hundreds of thousands. This Christ chose you and your wife before the foundation of the world, and in neither case were you elected because of your deserving. You're heirs together of grace. That's your legacy. And so when you say to your children, when you write out your will and you say, here's what your legacy has been, grace, the grace of life. Now, after all of this, this this seems you're starting to kind of get excited about this. And then Peter has to go and throw cold water on it. Look at the last phrase of verse 7. Peter adds an ominous note to his mandate. If verse 7 were a piece of music, this would be ending on a dark, minor, dissonant chord. Look at the end of verse 7, where Peter says, he's adding to his mandate, that husbands should understand and honor their wives so that you, speaking to husbands, so that your prayers not be hindered. And you're thinking, hey, 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 that's not fair. We're convinced that we can live any way we please and treat others poorly, and that should not have any impact on how our prayers are heard. Wrong. Your life is all of a piece. It's all woven together. And so let me point you to the clear, plain teaching of the text. If you don't dwell with your wife with understanding, if you just take her for granted and you think, she's not worthy of study, of knowledge, of understanding, of growth, if you don't dwell with her with understanding, if you don't honor her, if you don't treat her as a joint heir of all the blessings of adoption, 
the Father will discipline you. And here's how he'll do it. Look at verse 7. Your prayers will be hindered. The Greek word for hindered here is a fascinating word. It means to impede, to render fruitless, to be clogged up or blocked. Now, if you're, if you're troubled by this, this text is part of a class of text of Scripture. Scripture on six occasions lists times, places, events that will hinder your prayers. This might be a new teaching to you, but this is one of the six locations. Let me tell you what the others are. James, in James 4.3, says, Wrong motives are a hindrance to prayer. James says God will not hear self-centered prayers that are inconsistent with the character and nature of God. He says this and says, you ask, but you don't receive. Because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. That's one of the six. The second is Proverbs 28, where Solomon writes and says, ignoring of scripture is a hindrance to prayer. Solomon writes, one who turns his ear away from hearing the law His prayer is an abomination. A third time that our prayers are said to be hindered. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, unforgiving hearts are a hindrance. Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them, that your Father in heaven may forgive you also, your trespasses. But if you don't forgive, neither will your Father in heaven hear you and forgive your trespasses. Another one of those six, unconfessed sin is a hindrance to prayer. The psalmist writes in Psalm 66, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. A fifth, in addition to our text, doubt is a hindrance to prayer. James in James chapter 1 says, let the man ask in faith with no doubting. He who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let that man not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. And then our text. And what you're looking at is, is that tiny class of text, six of them in the scriptures, that say there are actions on your part that can clog up, impede, hinder your praying. And this is one. The mistreatment of your wife. If you think you're Prayer life is flat and dead. Perhaps you should look at your marriage and your very treatment of your wife. Let me make two brief applications of this text. The first is, biblical Christianity has done much to honor women. You should know that. The teaching that husbands must honor and sacrificially love their wives was unheard of in surrounding cultures, Babylon, Greece, and Rome. The notion that wives were joint heirs of all spiritual blessings was radical when taught by Peter and Paul. And so today, when you hear critics of the gospel, and they are many, claiming the scriptures are misogynistic, anti-women, you need to quickly correct them and point out that Jesus and his apostles radically elevated the status and treatment of women. I wouldn't be surprised if the most flack Peter ever got for his teaching was verse 7 by Greeks and Romans. Are you kidding me? Peter, grant honor to my, to my wife? By the way, ask those critics of the gospel who say that Christianity is misogynistic. Ask those critics how women fare in Mormonism and Islam. 
A second application. Men, you need to listen carefully. In those first seven verses of 1 Peter 3, Peter teaches what God's order for your home is. I hope you understand that Scripture teaches an order in the home and the family, and this is it. Listen to what this order is. Put together last week and this week. Here's the order that God is commanding. Here's what your home, a Christian home, should look like, a Christian marriage. Voluntary submission by a wife, without a word. Second, ongoing, constant study of their wife by husbands with an intention to honor them and protect them. Third, a delightful understanding of both partners that they are joint heirs of all of God's blessings of grace. Do you view your wife as your joint heir and recipient of grace? And then fourth, husbands, a clear knowledge on your part that a departure from this model will hinder your prayers. An adherence to this model, these first seven verses of 1 Peter 3, an adherence to this model is what will bring peace where there's strife. It is what will make a home a Christian home. Let's pray together. Our Father, we recognize that the world we live in doesn't rightly understand or value clear gender roles. We see that in our nation, marriage is held in low esteem and viewed as temporary. So we pray right now for Woodruff Road, for us as a corporate body. We pray that the simple, clear, apostolic message of the last two Sundays would have a transformational impact on our homes. Where marriages are shaky, we ask that you would strengthen them. Where there is strife, we ask that you would bring peace. Where marriages are thoughtless, re-energize and bring a commitment to depths of understanding. And we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would work in our homes so that each marriage would exhibit a clear picture of love. We ask that you would show us <clears throat> and live out in our homes how Christ and his bride live in love with one another, and that will be reflected in our marriages.